And I also encourage you to take out the outline for the sermon this morning as I deliver a message I've entitled Deliverer Developed. Last week we looked at Deliverer Delivered. Today we're going to look at a passage, the end of chapter 2, where God and through some situations and choices that Moses has made, he's going to be taken through a series of events that will actually be used by God to develop Moses to be the deliverer that God has called him to be. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verse 17, there's a very interesting verse that paints, paints somewhat of a compelling word picture for us. Here's what the Bible says. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Now, you need to know that in the ancient Near East, dogs were not domesticated. They weren't Fifi or Fido or Fluffy. They were not friendly. They were ravenous. And if you took a passing dog by the ears, there was a 100% guarantee you're going to get bit. And so what the proverb is saying is that if you meddle in a quarrel, you're going to get bit, right? That's not your own. Some of you have experienced that dilemma and that problem before. And so we need to understand what is this implying? There are situations in life that frankly are none of your business, And you should not get involved in those situations. But I would ask you this morning, is that always the case? Is is it always the case that whenever there's conflict, whenever there's quarrels between individuals, is it always the case that it's none of your business? What do we do when we see real instances of injustice? What do we do when we see real occasions of oppression or manipulation or mistreatment of the weak, innocent being exploited. Now, I'm not speaking to police officers. We have police officers in our church, and we're thankful for them. It is their job to get involved. But what about the rest of us? When no choice of our own, we just happen to be at the right place in the right time, or maybe the wrong place at the wrong time, and we see an instant of abuse, of oppression, of mistreatment. I'm sure like many of you, I've seen Uh, cell phone video of New York City subway scuffles where there have been people in those subway cars who are being abused or mistreated by some perpetrator and everyone in that packed subway car has their earbuds in and their noses in their phones and act as if nothing's happening around them. Do you just let it go or do you get involved whenever there is abuse around us? You know, this past week we celebrated the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday on Monday I want you to notice what Dr. King said about not getting involved with injustice. He said, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. History will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. Another modern-day prophet by the name of Bob Dylan put it this way. He said, how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? Here's the deal. To see injustice and abuse and intervene is not meddling. It's what we're called to do. It's who we're called to be. And what we'll see in our passage today is Moses becomes a firsthand witness of abuse of oppression, and he chooses 
to get involved. But here's the problem with Moses. He doesn't involve himself in a nonviolent way as Dr. King advocated throughout his life. He became violent so much so he killed a man. He murdered a man and then buried him in the sand to hide the evidence. Now, what I want us to remember is that the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. I've mentioned this the last two weeks. God made promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis, and we begin to see those promises fulfilled in the book of Exodus. God promised Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And in the book of Exodus, we see that comes to pass. In the book of Genesis, God promised Abraham that your descendants will spend 400 years in a land that's not their own, but they will come out a mighty people with great possessions. And we see it happen in the book of Exodus. In the book of Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants will inhabit the land that he was just sojourning in, the land of Canaan. And we begin to see those promises come to pass. But as I've mentioned each week, Moses and Abraham, for that matter, are not the main characters of the book of Exodus. Here's a simple question, a Sunday school question. Who's the main character of Exodus? Jesus is the main character of Exodus. And we're going to see that, Lord willing, each and every week. Now, the last time we were together, last Sunday, what we saw was this this boy Moses was rescued in an ark in the Nile River. And he floated along to Pharaoh's daughter who took him out and rescued him and gave him a home. He went into that home and, and was raised there as one of Pharaoh's grandchildren, as her own daughter. Now, fast forward 37 years. And that's where we are this morning at the second half of chapter two of the book of Exodus. He's now 40 years old. Now, this passage that we're going to look at today, it's laid out in our modern translations in three distinct paragraphs. And as a preacher, I love that because that gives me three distinct points in my sermon. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read each paragraph under each point as we go through the message today. I will let you know ahead of time, we're going to spend about 80% of our time on point number one. So when we get to point number one and it's almost noon, don't worry, we're almost done. We'll get through before the strike the clock strikes 12. Three things I want us to see as we look at these three paragraphs. Number one, a rejection of the prophet. What we see in this first paragraph is a rejection of the prophet. And this really is the first crucible that Moses goes through that God will use to develop him to become the deliverer that he needs to be. He will be rejected by the very ones that God is sending him to deliver. So let's read the first paragraph, beginning of verse 11. This is the word of God. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, when you ever read or study or research a particular passage of scripture, there are always many observations, many applications, many ideas and truths and principles that you can draw from the passage. 
I've read a lot of commentaries and sermons, listened to sermons on this passage over the last couple of weeks, and I've heard some that uh, they make these ideas the point of their messages, but I would present to you these are not the main point of the text. Here's some ideas that you can draw from this, and it's not that they're bad or they're wrong. They are good even, but they're not the main point of the passage. Here's one. Impulsive anger is a dangerous sin which produces a lot of pain for you and for those around you. Is that true? Yes. Can we draw that from this passage? Yes. Is it the main point of the passage? No, it's not. Here's another one. There is no such thing as a secret sin. Is that true? Yes. Uh, Be sure God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, this he will also reap. Your sin will find you out. Can we draw that from the passage? Yes. He thought he had hidden the body in the sand and nobody would know. He looked this way, he looked that way. It's, It's unknown, but his sin found him out. But this is not the main point of the passage. Here's another one. When you don't wait for the Lord, you miss out on his opportunities for you. Is this true? Yes, it is true. You've got to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. This is true. We can draw this from the passage, but again, this is not the main point of the text. So what is the main point of the text? Well, the best way to discover an Old Testament truth is to look at it through the lens of the New Testament. In fact, that's on your outline. Look at this next slide. We interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says that the New Testament, the new covenant, that's what a testament is, it's the covenant, is the true and better covenant. What is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. So we seek to understand all Old Testament passages, and specifically the book of Exodus, through the New Covenant, through the New Testament. So we ask ourselves a question when we come to an Old Testament passage. Is this passage mentioned or described or commentated on in the New Testament? It just so happens this passage that we just read is mentioned not once but twice in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at those New Testament passages. But before we get there, there's a clue. There's actually three clues for us in verse 11 of our passage that help us to understand what it is that God would communicate to us. Look at verse 11 again, and I've outlined the the three clues. Clue number one, when Moses had grown up. So what does it mean when the text says Moses grew up? Does it mean he became an adult, that he he reached his height, his stature that he was going to reach? What does it mean that he had grown up? We'll discover that in the New Testament. Clue number two, he went out to his people. What does that mean, that he went out to his people? Did he just go on a fact-finding mission, or does it mean something deeper? And clue number three, and he looked on their burdens. What does it mean that Moses looked on the burdens of his people. Twice, he's, he, the Hebrew people are referred to as Moses' people, his people. What does it mean that he's looked on their burdens? Now, the first place I want us to look where this passage is mentioned in the New Testament is actually in the book of Acts chapter 7. If you know the book of Acts and the storyline of Acts, Acts chapter 7 is the longest chapter in the book of Acts, and it's the longest recorded sermon in the New Testament. It's recorded by Uh, preached by someone by the name of Stephen, who was a deacon in the first church in Jerusalem. He's preaching this sermon to the gathered Sanhedrin, the 70 elders and rulers over the religious function of Israel. This is the very same Sanhedrin that convicted Jesus to die and handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. They hate Stephen. 
They have arrested Stephen. They have put him on trial. And the main reason they hate Stephen is because Stephen is a follower of Jesus and they hate Jesus. And so Stephen presents to them a sermon. And one of the main points over and over again that Stephen reiterates again and again to these 70 religious leaders is that here's your history, Jewish leaders. Throughout your history, you have always rejected, mistreated, and killed the prophets and messengers that God has sent to you. (laughs) That's pretty bold. And he gives illustration after illustration and illustration of how throughout Hebrew history, this is exactly what they've done. They've manipulated, they've mistreated, and they've killed the very messengers and the prophets that God has sent to them. And one of the examples Stephen gives is this passage right here we just read in Exodus chapter 2. So look at this, uh, what it says, and this is the answer to clue number, t- number one. What does it mean that Moses had grown up? What does that text mean? Well, the New Testament expands for us and lets us know what that means. Look at verse 20 through 22 of Acts 7. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. This is Stephen preaching before the Sanhedrin. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Here's our clue number one. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. So what does it mean that Moses grew up? It means that he had the best education you could possibly have in the world. He was instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt. He was well-educated. He was groomed, if not to be the next Pharaoh, at least to be someone of nobility and royalty in Pharaoh's household. He was groomed to be a ruler in Egypt as the grandson of Pharaoh. It also means he was mighty in words and deeds. It means he was strong. He was bright. He was a natural leader. He had charisma. And Pharaoh's daughter, being his mother, adopted mother, meant he had access to every advantage known to man. So clue number one, what does it mean that Moses grew up? That's what it means. He was the brightest of the bright, well-educated, a leader, a man's man. But did he want the power? Did he want the position? Did he want to be a ruler? Did he want to be the next Pharaoh? Well, we turn to another New Testament passage to find the answer to that question. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. Here's what the Bible says. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, that's our first clue, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. We have Moses here, being offered the highest job in the land, and he says, thanks but no thanks. I'm turning the job down, not because the job was not a pleasurable job, not because the job was not a powerful job. I mean, Hebrews says, sin has pleasure. Have you found that to be true? (laughs) Sin is pleasurable. But he did not pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here's an application for us. All of us want something. We're human. 
All of us have deep desires and longings and pursuits. All of us want notoriety or power or pleasure or wealth or access to those things. He was handed a blank check and he tore it up. Thanks, but no thanks. Old people like me will remember this TV show, Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall, right? You remember that show? Monty Hall is standing before Moses. And on the table, Moses, is all the wealth of Egypt, all the power you could ever want, all the advantages that life could afford you. And Monty Hall says, and Moses, behind door number one, I'm actually going to show you what's behind door number one. You're going to be hated. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to be rejected by the very people God sends you to deliver. Moses, let's make a deal. What do you want? All the wealth of Egypt on the table? Or do you want the mistreatment behind door number one? And you know what Moses says? Give me door number one every day. Because I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Than to be the king of a vast domain? That is loss. That is nothing. I want Christ. I want Jesus. That's exactly what Hebrews says. Or be held in sin's dread sway, no matter how pleasurable and enjoyable and delightful sin may be for a season. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. You see, because by faith, Moses saw Jesus. By faith, Moses saw the promise of Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman, the descendant of Eve, would come and be a deliverer and would crush the head of the serpent. Moses believed by faith that there would be a singular, solitary descendant of Abraham through whom and by whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so as Hebrews says, by faith, he was looking to the reward. By faith, he chose Christ than all the kingdoms of a vast domain. There's one more clue, though, that we haven't considered. Let's look back at Exodus 2.11 one more time. Look at it. One day, clue number one, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. What does it mean that he looked on their burdens? What does it mean? Well, to answer that, let's go back to Stephen's sermon, Acts chapter 7, because we can answer that question. Acts 7, verse 23 and following. When he, that's Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, man, you are brothers. What are you wronging each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So what does it mean that he saw their burdens? It means he saw the injustice of their situation. And when Moses went out to his people, he didn't go as an undercover boss. (laughs) He didn't go just to kind of check the situation out. He didn't go as a union rep. Let's see what the mistreatment looks like as they're building the pyramids here in Egypt. He went to be one of them. He went to be among them. He went to be their deliverer, to set them free. Talk about unmet expectations. 
Moses went thinking they would understand with all of his experience, with all of his education, with all of his position, that he could deliver them from their oppression. He thought when he started singing, we shall overcome, they would join in and sing, but they didn't. They said, who are you? Get out of here. His efforts were not rewarded. And this is the point of the passage, that God sent his people a deliverer, and they rejected him. Now, he made some mistakes. He committed murder. The text is not condoning murder. I'm not condoning murder. God does not condone murder. But that's not really the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that God sent someone to rescue them, and the deliverer, the rescuer, was rejected. How do we know that? Because that's the point of Stephen's whole message in Acts chapter 7. Look how he concludes the message, verse 51 and 52. He says to these 70 elders over Israel, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. The worst insult you could speak to a Jewish person was saying they were uncircumcised somehow, some way. And that's exactly what Stephen says to him. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Rhetorical question. The rhetorical answer is none of them. In other words, they executed all of them. They resisted them. They abused them. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen, bold Stephen, calls the 70 elders over Israel murderers because they rejected and and they killed Jesus who was sent to them. Friends, this is what Exodus 2 is picturing for us. Not just that Moses was rejected by his people, but that is a picture, that is a shadow, that is a portrayal of how Jesus would be rejected and he would ultimately be murdered. And even Stephen, who was speaking to them right then, what did they do with him? They took him down out of town, laid their coats beside the feet of one Saul of Tarsus so they could be loose enough to pelt him with rocks until they beat the life out of him. They killed Stephen as well. Do you see the picture of Christ in this episode? Do you see it? Here's Moses. He left the splendor of the palace to be among his people to rescue them from their oppression. Do we know anybody else who did that? Who left the splendor of a palace to be among his people to rescue them from their oppression? Of course, Jesus did that. Like look how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look at four scriptures real quickly that speak to this reality. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. But what happened when he came? John 1, 11, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Look at the prediction of Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. John 19, 15, Pilate, confused by the whole situation, says to the religious leaders, shall I crucify your king? Chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. The people of Moses' day, Moses, we don't want you. We have no king but Pharaoh. He's our king. And all of us, at some time or another, we have said the very same thing in our heart of hearts. I will not have a king rule over me. 
I will not have a prophet speak truth to my soul. I will be my own king. I will determine my truth. I will rule. And therefore, we have been a party to the rejection of Jesus. We have been a party to the murder of Jesus because we wanted to be king of our own domain rather than submit to the rule of Christ. Friends, that's why I keep saying Exodus is our history because we've rejected Jesus. We've rejected the deliverer over and over again. And some of you today, you've never responded to Jesus. Be my king. Some of you today have never responded to Jesus. Rule over my life. Take complete control. I would say do it today. That's the first thing we see in the first paragraph. Pictures Christ, the rejection of the prophet. That leads to point number two, a refugee in this place. Moses becomes a refugee in this place because Pharaoh had heard about Moses' killing of the Egyptian, Moses decides to go on the run. He decides to flee from Egypt and go to the land of Midian, where what does he do? He sits by a well. Now, if you've read Genesis, you know lots of stuff happens at wells. (laughs) People go and these men go and sit by a well, and all of a sudden their lives change forever. And we see that here as well. He sits by a well. Let's look at verses 16 through 22. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses becomes a refugee on the run, a fugitive. And he gets to the land of Midian. He sits beside a well And there are these seven women there who are being oppressed by these bad dudes, these shepherds. And just like in Egypt, Moses, being a man of chivalry and right, he doesn't let oppression go unconfronted. And so he stands up by himself and he deals with these mean shepherds and he rescues those seven daughters of Ruel and he even waters their own flock. It's interesting that when the ladies return home, they came home sooner than dad expected. Well, your, your chore should have taken you longer than that. Why did you get done so quickly? And they said, well, dad, this Egyptian man was there. And one, he rescued us from these bad dudes. And two, he watered our sheep. And dad says, wait a cotton picking minute. That's the message translation. Wait a cotton picking minute. I've got seven single daughters. There's a good looking strong, smart, chivalrous man, and you didn't bring him home? What are you thinking? Go back and get him. Have him come over for a meal. Maybe he'll find one of you ladies 
and he'll want to marry you. And sure enough, he does. He marries Zipporah and they have a child together. Now, I want you to notice the attitude of Moses, particularly as he settles down in the land of Midian. In fact, look at this next slide. This is a map that shows you the journey Moses takes from the land of Goshen in northern Egypt to Midian. He has to go through the middle of the Sinai Desert. It's about 300 miles by foot. If you're walking 16 hours a day, it's probably going to take you um, close to a month to make that journey. He's trying to get away from the murderous intent of Pharaoh, from the plot to kill him. He goes across the desert, across the wilderness, into Midian. He sits by this well, and that's where he has this encounter. He's just a lonely man on the run. And what does God do? God gives him a wife. And what does God give Moses and Zipporah? They, God gives them a son. And Moses names his son Gershom. What does the name Gershom mean? Refugee. Foreigner. Stranger in a strange land. In other words, what is Moses saying? I don't belong here. I don't belong in Midian. This is not my home. I'm just passing through. I was raised in a palace. And here I am tending sheep on the backside of the desert. Moses was not singing. Green Acres is the place for me. Farm living is the life for me. Land spreading out so far and wide. Leave Egypt. Just give me this countryside. No, he was not saying that. He was saying, what am I doing in this backwater town in Midian? But here's the deal. Even when he was living in Egypt, was he at home there? No. (laughs) He was a stranger there. Notice what the Bible said again in verse 26 of Hebrews 11. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What is he looking to? I'm kind of homesick for a place I've never been before. That's what he was looking to. He was looking to the reward. He was looking to heaven. He was looking to Christ. And this is the same call of us as Christians. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in chapter 3, he refers to us as Christians as refugees, as sojourners, as exiles. We're just passing through. I'll quote another musical prophet, Tom Petty. (laughs) Tom Petty said, you don't have to live like a refugee. No, you don't, unless you're a Christian. And you absolutely must live like a refugee because we are. This is not our home. We are refugees. We are strangers. And that really leads to the final point this morning, and that is this, a remembrance of a promise. A remembrance of a promise. Chapter 2 ends with an interesting description of God moving and why God moves. It says that God remembered his covenant. God remembered a promise. So normally when we say that, oh, I remember, it's because we forgot. So did God forget? Is God forgetful? Did he lose track of what he was supposed to be doing? And something happened that triggered his memory and he had a recall? Oh, yeah, I remember now. I had a covenant. I had a promise. Well, let's see if we can make sense of this in the last paragraph of the chapter, beginning in verse 23. 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, I want you to notice something about this that's very interesting in the text. It says the people of Israel cried out, but it doesn't specifically say they cried out to God. It says they were groaning, but it doesn't specifically say they were groaning to God. They could have been. Maybe this was a prayer, but maybe not. In fact, as we'll see through the book of Exodus, as we go forward this year, the people of Israel groan and grumble a lot, but they're not prayers. They're complaints to Moses. Did you bring us out here to die with all the leeks and garlics back in Egypt we could eat? Right? They're grumbling. They're groaning. What's the point? Well, God heard their groaning. The text says as much. But I would submit to you that it was not their groaning that moved God's heart to rescue them. What moved God's heart to rescue them was one word, remember. He remembered. In fact, look at this next slide. It is not the sincerity or fervency of their crying out that moved the hand of God on their behalf, but a resolute determination of God to accomplish his purpose for his glory. The key word in this episode is remember. Again, it's not that God forgot, but God remembered his covenant. His covenant he made with Abraham. And I would remind you who initiated the covenant with Abraham, Abraham or God? God initiated it. Abram wasn't looking for God in any form or fashion. God initiated the covenant. God put faith in the heart of Abraham. Abraham cried out to God. He responded in faith, but it was God's faithful, active determination that he was going to accomplish all that he had promised. God being fully aware, intimately aware of his promise to Abraham and his descendants determines of his own volition and will, I'm going to act in accord with my covenant. I'm going to act in accord with my promise. He didn't act because they were deserving people. Were they deserving people? No. They had already rejected the the deliverer God was sending to them. They were not deserving people. The reason God responded, the reason God remembered is simply based upon the fact was he made a promise And friends, God always keeps his promises. And so the point of the passage is just that. God keeps his promises. The point of Exodus here, that is a continuation of Genesis. God made promises over and over to Abram and his descendants. And here in Exodus, he fulfills them. And the fact that God always keeps his promises That has a very important application to us today in 2024. God always keeps his promises. God always fulfills his covenant. You see, because even though God had made a covenant with Abram, 
Hebrews, again, Hebrews 8, 6, says there is a true and better covenant. What is that covenant? Friend, it's a covenant that was made before time began. It was a covenant that was made within the divine trinity, the Godhead. God the Father made a covenant with God the Son. And God the Son made a covenant with God the Spirit. And God the Spirit made a covenant with God the Father. Together, they made a promise together. What was the covenant? God the Father says, I will save a people for myself. God the Son says, I will go and die for those people. And God the Spirit says, I will regenerate those people from death to life, and I will keep them forever and always. This is the covenant. This is the promise. And now that promise, which was made before time has begun, is set into motion through Abram, through Moses, through the history of the Hebrew people, when finally a descendant of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, is born in a little manger in Bethlehem. And when he comes, he's despised. He's rejected by the very ones he came to save. But yet, God always keeps his promises. He had a covenant, and he kept that covenant. And so now when people, not good people, bad people like you, (laughs) bad people like me, when we cry out to God, we're brought into that covenant. We're brought into that promise. And God remembers and God acts solely because of the covenant he has made. In fact, I want you to notice again the very last verse of this chapter. This is the kind of verse that should be on a plaque in your living room. <laughs> this is the kind of verse that we should put on a T-shirt or in a magnet for your refrigerator. Look what the Bible says. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Friend, if you are part of the covenant of God, God sees and God knows. Is that not good news this morning? God sees you in all your struggles, in all your trials, in all your hardships, in all the difficulties, in all your losses. God sees, God knows, and God rescues. We're about to share in this meal. You know what this meal is? This is the covenant meal. This is the new covenant meal. Every time we share this meal, I always quote from 1 Corinthians 11. We share this meal on the third Sunday of every month as a church family. Today's the third Sunday. And we receive these elements. Why did Jesus institute this meal? Why? Again, Bible students, we always look for repeated words and phrases. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 and look for a repeated phrase. And when he, Jesus, had given thanks, he broke it, that's the bread, and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Why? In remembrance of me. We have it carved in the front of our communion table. Why do we take this meal? To remember. God remembered his covenant. Friends, sometimes we forget the covenant. We take this meal to remember the covenant. 
And so this morning, as you take that small little cracker and you crunch it in your teeth, remember the covenant that Jesus' body was broken for you. And as you take this cup and you drink the juice, remember the blood that was shed for the atonement of your sins. Remember the covenant that Christ purchased with his own life. Jesus instituted this meal so we would remember the covenant. Whatever's happening in your life today, whatever struggles you're facing, if you're a believer in Jesus, he says, take the bread, take the cup, and remember. And that leads to my last thought, and it's a quote from 1 Thessalonians 5. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it.